These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark. Cover it inside and out with pitch. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your son's wife with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind, two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. The word of the Lord. Thanks. I am just tickled that we are talking about Noah this morning and it is thundering. Right? Do you not feel that a little bit? Huh. Thank goodness God has promised not to do that again. We're making our way through Hebrews 11, and we are considering uh, the notion of heroes. Hebrews 11 is teaching us something that is uh, both fascinating and important for our walk of faithfulness. It is teaching us this, that unquestionably there is one true hero. He is the hero by which all other heroes are defined, and that is Jesus. But when you get to chapter 11, you also have the notion that we are called to be heroic. It's a list of of people in the Old Testament who ordered their lives around what they believed God was saying, what he was revealing. And as a result of doing that, they are considered heroic. Hebrews 11 is often called the hall of faith. Those men and women who, as a result of their faith, uh, acted heroically. And so as we are engaging this study of heroism, we see this morning, this is what we're after, that to understand and to be heroic, we have to fear the right thing. Now, why are we talking about fear and fearing the right thing? Noah is somewhat unique in Hebrews chapter 11. If you look at verse 7, amidst all the other people in Hebrews 11, and you've got different stories and different situations, 
But Noah is particularly set apart for having received a warning and then having acted out of fear. That's somewhat different than the other people listed in Hebrews chapter 11. Some receive promises. Some uh, decide to um, believe that God is going to act in a way that benefits them. And clearly, unquestionably, there's the promise of deliverance to Noah and his family. But the author of Hebrews wants to highlight that what sets Noah apart is that he receives a warning and he responds with reverent fear. And that's why we're talking this morning about what it means to be heroic is to fear the right thing. Now that may sound simple, and I would guess many of you, not all of you have begun to feel that, fill that in. But what we need to do as a result of the text is to define what we mean by fear and really define what we mean by the right thing. Right, that's what we're going to work on this morning. As we see... Uh, Hebrews chapter 11, verses 6 and 7, it begins by relaying to us that God revealed to Noah things yet unseen, things as yet unseen, things that were about to happen. Well, what did God reveal to Noah? In Genesis 6, we see that God reveals to Noah that the situation on earth has become very, very bad. It seems that Virtually no one, except for Noah, remembers God. That there's been a forgetfulness in humanity, and no one is relating to Him. Not only that, but it says that the intention of man's heart had become wicked, that they were characterized by violence. It, it paints a picture of, of a world that must have been pretty horrible to live in. Now, in the midst of this, Noah gets a pass. Why is that? Well, it tells us that Noah found favor in chapter 6, verse 8 of Genesis. Noah found favor in the eyes of God. And in chapter 7, verse 1, it tells us that he was a righteous man. So this is the situation as it stands before us. Right? The earth has become corrupt and evil. Noah is found to be righteous. So Noah gets the ticket to get on the ark while the rest of the earth is destroyed. We might ask, is this where we end? Is this the point of our wrestling with the text this morning? In other words, is this the gist of what the author of Hebrews is after? God is holy and just, and He can only tolerate so much sin, and when sin gets to a certain extent, He's got to wipe it off the face of the earth. But if you're righteous, then you get a pass. So the two things that you better take seriously are that God takes sin more seriously than you do, and you had better be righteous, because it's the way to make it through. And that's how we're like Noah. You know, I don't know if I would say most churches, but if you, if, if you wrestled with this text in a lot of churches today, that's the sermon you would hear. Right? Noah's an example of faith for us, and we need to emulate that faith. God is angry and punishes sin. We don't want to be in the group that's punished. We want to be on the ark. And so we're going to pursue righteousness and live in fear of God's wrath and judgment. And that way we guarantee that we're going to be on the ark and be spared His judgment. It's not really the message, the idea that we're supposed to walk away with from the author of Hebrews. I hope not. That message would be crushing. Not only would it be crushing, but you might start ask, to ask the question, well, what was the point of Jesus if that's the message? So we need to uh, bore down deeper. 
We need to press ourselves more into the text and try to understand a, uh, a more significant, a more colorful, a deeper picture of what's happening in the life of Noah. And Noah's story is not an easy one. Right? I don't think so. Anyway, I, I wrestled with, with Noah's story, and I, part of me, frankly, doesn't like to preach it because when you start to think about what really was global genocide like, and how, how do we reconcile the God of the cross and Jesus with the God who wipes out all of humanity? The Noah movie, which takes all kinds of liberties with the text and deviates in a number of ways, and if you're somebody who is, that's going to push your buttons, you're going to get mad by watching it. But it treats a number of things interestingly, and there's one scene where the remnant of humanity has, has climbed to the tallest mountain peak, and the ark is going by in the waves of the storm, and they're crying out, and the people on the ark are listening to their cries. And you begin to get a sense of, oh, that was an awful day. We don't really think about it. But the cries, the death of so many people. And how, how then, as a result of that, do we understand who God is? Gosh, you know, one of the things that the, the movie does well is, can you imagine being Noah? Right? Watching all of humanity wipe out. Wouldn't, wouldn't part of you say, you know, I'll take the flood. I don't really know that I want the responsibility to be the next Adam and Eve and to begin creation again. Or can you imagine the survivor's guilt? All of humanity is wiped out. You were chosen to survive. It becomes less surprising that one of the first things that Noah does when he gets off the ark is get very drunk. Right? What an incredible ordeal that he had been through. And again, what is this? This raises all kinds of questions about God. Is God simply tyrannical? Does he simply have a hammer in his hand and when justice or injustice or evil gets to a certain point, he swings the hammer? And that's the end of the story. That would be a hard God to relate to. It would be a hard God to worship. It would be a God that wouldn't offer, I don't think, much life. So why was there a flood? Isn't that a fair question? Particularly fair, I think, because God intervenes all the time in the midst of evil. He interrupts the story of evil all the time, yet he doesn't choose to do so between Adam and Noah. He lets the world get to this place of debauchery. When, when there's no one seemingly worshiping him, he calls a pagan, Abram, gives him a new name and raises him up in righteousness. Or when there's no one to lead Israel living in Egypt, he raises up Moses, again, to interrupt the story, to set it in a new direction. And over and over again in the book of Judges, he raises up a judge when everyone is doing what they want to do and following after their own desires. So why is it that between Genesis 1 and Genesis 6, we don't get that kind of raising up of someone to put the story in a different direction so we don't actually have to end up at global genocide? Well, we must conclude, I think, that God wanted the flood. That he intended for it to occur. That there is something important in the flood that, that has to happen. And there's another story of a storm, another story of sea, and 
and, and fear that I think helps us to understand a little bit what's going on in the flood narrative. And it's a story that occurs in Mark 4. Jesus and the disciples decide to cross the sea and they get into boats and they begin to cross the sea and a great storm comes upon the sea. The waves are, are, are frothing. The wind is howling. The boat is taking on water. And the threat is that they are going to sink and they are going to drown. So where's Jesus in the midst of all this? He's asleep in the stern of the boat. The disciples finally say, wake him. What are you doing? We're about to perish. Do you not see what's happening around us? And Jesus says, be calm and be still. And immediately the storm ceases. And then what's interesting, the response of the disciples is uh, that they became very afraid. They were afraid of the storm to begin with. But now as a result of seeing Jesus calm the storm, they're very afraid. What the the story doesn't necessarily tell us, but what, what happens after that is that Jesus chastises them. He says, where was your faith? Why, why were you afraid? You didn't have a good reason to be afraid. This was just a storm. Do you not know who I am? And the question that Jesus is, is, is raising for them that they should have been struggling with is, oh, we shouldn't have been afraid of the storm. Huh, I wonder why. They should have begun to process, oh, if Jesus is who he's claiming to be, if he calms the storm, if he controls the storm, then he's the one that brought the storm. And they might say, oh, if I'm not supposed to be afraid of the storm, and this storm was brought by Jesus as well, stilled by Jesus, then what really am I supposed to be afraid of? And I think if that question had had opportunity to come up and Jesus had opportunity to answer it, he would have said, the, the chaos and the winds and the storm that is in your heart, that is what I've come to deal with. It is far more dangerous and far more deadly and is what, is what actually threatens you. Threatens you in an eternal sense, not simply in a physical sense. And as the storm was necessary for the disciples to begin to wrestle with the right question in Mark 4, right? oh, I shouldn't be afraid of this. What should I be afraid of? What's going on here? I think in some ways, similar, that the flood is necessary to awaken humanity. That humanity has gone down a road where God has been forgotten, where they have turned their back on God. And like Tubal Cain in the movie, as I referenced in the children's lesson, right? we are in his image. We, we give life. We take it away. We will decide when we will die. We will have no reference to God. And that it's the flood that then comes upon humanity to begin to wake humanity up. Isn't it interesting that every ancient culture in the world has a flood narrative? That there is a repository of knowledge in which we, when we might think that God does not take evil seriously, oh, he takes it very seriously. And that's the first, of course, that's the starting point. Right? If you don't, if you don't believe that God takes evil seriously and you don't take it seriously in your own lives and heart, then you can't begin to move on towards where Noah actually is, where we're going to get to in a minute. You know, if you're here a little bit early at 10.15, we thought the tornado siren was going off. Ended up being someone's phone. But it was pretty exciting for a minute. Right? And so what did we do? We all went to the basement. Right? At the sound of the tornado siren, we took warning and acted appropriately. 
Does even a portion of your life reveal that you believe what you say about the warnings that God gives? You don't hesitate to proceed to the basement to avoid a tornado. Do you actually order your life to prepare for standing before the living God? That's the first place that you have to start, is to understand that God takes evil very seriously. But you can't stop there with just a picture of a tyrannical God who swings the hammer when he wants to, because that's not what's presented to us. How does God actually respond to the flood as it unfolds? Genesis 6 tells us that God is grieved in his heart. You don't have a picture of a God saying, punishing. You don't have a picture of a person who has built a Lego robot being so frustrated he smashes the Legos. You have a picture of a God who mourns, who weeps what must happen so that the story might move forward in the right direction. That's a very different picture than a God who is simply tyrannical. It's a God who is willing to do the hardest thing out of love. There's there's a new Arnold Schwarzenegger movie out which is supposedly totally different for his type of character. It's gotten great reviews, but I was so scared by the preview, I wouldn't watch it. But the preview will actually... So I can't ruin the movie for you. But the preview is looks like a, a, a fascinating premise, particularly if, like me, you happen to be a great fan of the zombie genre. So Schwarzenegger is a farmer. A virus has infected the population, and it's a slower-moving uh, virus. So you, you get infected, and eventually you get turned into a flesh-eating zombie. But it's slow. Apparently, you can stay at home for a while before you have to be quarantined. And so in the preview, they show the doctors and authorities telling Schwarzenegger, listen, uh, if it gets to a certain point, like your daughter shows an unusual interest in human blood, take her to quarantine. That's what you're supposed to do. But apparently, Schwarzenegger is going to do everything he can to protect and to keep his daughter and to see her to a good ending. There's one scene in the movie where uh, Schwarzenegger, you know, he's almost 70. And he looks like he could still tear a lion apart with his bare hands. But he's sitting asleep, kind of like trying to play the old man and his lazy boy in the living room. And his daughter, who's who's very infected at this point, comes up and starts sniffing him. Right? And you're thinking, this is why I wouldn't watch it. Because you're thinking, wake up. Your your daughter's about to eat you. Right? So I'm the, you know, you've got to wake up. You've got to do something. Right? And, but this, this for me is, is the story of, of God in humanity. Right? It's a story of us being infected by sin to the point that we would want to devour him, that we would want to harm him, that we would, de- we would consume him if we could. And yet in love, he is sacrificing everything to preserve a story of redemption. And so we can't let simply the story of Noah be that uh, God handle, takes evil very seriously. And so the kind of fear you should have is terror. Terror is what's going to motivate you in the right direction. And then you pursue righteousness, but then there's a problem. And the problem is this, that, that doesn't really solve anything. Right? Noah comes off the boat. Everything's well and good. He becomes a farmer. And he gets uh, he passes out uh, naked and drunk. And then his son... Uh, proceeds, Ham proceeds to see his nakedness, whatever that means. After which Noah curses him forever. Right? And Ham becomes the father of that much-loved people group, the Canaanites. 
In other words, if the story is simply evil is bad, God will crush it, our response should be terror, and that's how we pursue righteousness. That righteousness won't last, it will ultimately fail, sin will reemerge, and then you realize that by Genesis 7, we need another flood. Right? The flood can't be the answer. It doesn't actually solve anything. It awakens us to our plight. And interesting, you know, I think something going on is essentially as the law traps sin and prepares humanity to understand their inability to honor and obey God, that the flood prepares humanity and begins to define that even before the law. It's interesting that as soon as Noah comes off the ark, uh, God gives the first law. If a man sheds another man's blood, by his, his blood will be shed by man's hand. Right. Suddenly there's a value attached to blood and to life that didn't exist before in a world of violence. And God in His love and mercy is bringing this about. And so our story, if it's based on Noah's story, has to be different. It has to understand that God mourns evil and it grieves His heart to punishment. And He eventually wants to get to a cross that will remedy the situation, but for reasons that are well beyond us, humanity isn't ready. And it's a God who actually takes evil seriously, but also actually loves His creation and seeks to preserve it and doesn't destroy it outright and moves it forward to its proper conclusion. You know, I talked about Maggie just a minute ago, and the, the really fascinating thing about stories like that where, you know, you're like, wake up, your daughter's about to eat you. The fascinating thing is, is uh, God, God's well aware that we want to eat him, and he lets us. Right? You understand? We're the infected ones that want to consume God, and ultimately he says, yeah, the only thing that ultimately will remedy this is for me to let you consume it. It's for me to allow you to put me to death. And in that, the blood that will be effective for the remission of sins will be spilt. And in that, ultimately, you will begin to be made whole in me. And this is what, by faith, ultimately Noah looked forward to. A kind of remedy, a kind of salvation that would come in the future that went beyond the salvation that occurred in the flood. And by living by this faith, he became something uh, fascinating to the world. I mean, fascinating in this sense. If you look at chapter 11, uh, in, uh, chapter 11 of Hebrews, verse 7, it goes on to say that um, by this, what's the this? We're still talking about Noah's faith. right? So by faith, he condemns the world. By faith, he becomes an heir of righteousness. What does that mean? By the faith that he has in what God has revealed, he acts upon it, he builds an ark, which is absolutely crazy. Right? We can only imagine what was going on in the world and how they mocked him and the absurdity. And, and what, I mean, how many days were there when, when Noah's wife said, really? And how many days were there when Noah said, really? Is it going to rain? How is this going to happen? How is it going to work? And yet, because he has faith in what God is doing, he doesn't, he doesn't operate by sight. He doesn't value what the world values, but he continues to act in a way that he believes is pleasing to God and fulfilling of God's will. Not simply out of terror, 
but out of a reverent fear, which is completely different from terror, that respects the one who loves the world to death. To death in one way in the flood and to death in another way on the cross. I was talking to a, um, a student this week, and the student was relaying that by virtue of decisions at college, the student has had to make, uh, she's come under persecution. That there, by virtue of the decisions um, that she's making in her classes and what she engages in and the things that she's willing to write about and the projects that she's able to turn in, she's not getting the same attention. She's not getting the same honor. She's not getting the same grades because it isn't exactly what the professors want, but what the professors want she isn't comfortable with because of her convictions. And when she acts that way, when she says, I'm going to act not for a grade or not for a professor's approval, but for God's approval, what then is the result? She condemns the world, not because she's condemning the world or judging anything, but simply by acting in faith, she becomes an agent of condemnation. Friends, if you are really living by faith, there are people in your world who will be alienated by you because they are condemned by your faithfulness. If there is no one in your life who is uncomfortable by your faithfulness, then are you living by faith? By faith, Noah also became an heir of righteousness. By believing in the promises, by believing in the warning of God and acting in that reverent fear, he inherits something. They, not necessarily that he possesses, but he inherits something. And he looks forward to that righteousness that will come. And what is this a reference to? Why does the author phrase it this way? Wouldn't you think you would say that Noah, by building the ark, by cashing in everything that he had, and believing that God was doing something important, he had righteousness. It doesn't say he had righteousness in that way. It says he becomes an heir of righteousness. He becomes an inheritor of righteousness. Whose righteousness is he inheriting? to anticipate where we're headed and to anticipate the author of Hebrews at the end, he will say that all of these people look forward to something that would happen in the future that they could not be made righteous in the way that the, the audience of Hebrews is made righteous because that couldn't actually happen until Christ came. The author and perfect of our faith would run his course of faithfulness. And as a result of that, well then, we are all inheritors of His righteousness. The challenge of our sermon series is to be heroic. What does it mean to be heroic after the example of Noah that the author of Hebrews holds out to us? It means that we would fear the right thing. By fear, do we mean terror? No, we do not mean terror. We mean reverence. We mean respect. I mean, that we understand the person who loves us well. That God has not acted simply as a tyrant. Fear never actually breeds true righteousness. He's acted as the one who is willing to do the hardest things out of love, which is that which breeds true obedience. So our fear is reverent fear, and it is because the right thing is God in His love, not God in His tyranny. And if you think about this just for a moment in your life, you can all think of a teacher or sadly maybe even a parent or someone in your life 
who was tyrannical, who expected a high bar of righteousness and punished you when you did not meet that bar of righteousness. And you lived in terror, not a reverent fear, but a fear that you were always scared about what was going to come for your lack of faithfulness. And if you know someone like that, they're some of the most dysfunctional people you know. Because it's not love, and it doesn't breed character. It doesn't establish one's love and faithfulness. It robs a person of such. And you can all think of a parent or a teacher, someone who loved you well. Someone that you could be honest with and vulnerable with because you, you knew that out of their love, they would do two things at the same time. They would be the most severe with you and they would be the most gracious with you. And in the biblical story, do not we see over and over again God's severity and His graciousness happen at the same time. It happens at the same time at the flood. It happens at the same time in the cross. It happens over and over again at the same time in your life. But to fear, to reverently fear God, is to know that He loves you to the extent that He will spare nothing to redeem you. And that He is the most worthy of respect and reverence. And out of that, then, we move forward in faith. And what does that look like? Where do you condemn the world? Do you act as an heir of righteousness? These are the things which testify to us whether we really, truly are walking in faith or whether we're just pretending. Thanks God for His grace in our walk of faithfulness. Our gracious God, we praise You. We worship You and confess that it is hard to understand all of Your actions in history. But at the same time, we we acknowledge that we have a far more heightened sense of the nature of evil and its consequences on this side of the flood than humanity did before. And so we pray that you would help us to be wise and help us to be righteous as Noah was in giving your promises and warnings that we would know that your love is great, but out of that very love comes a severity. And let us not take your grace for granted, but instead pursue you in faithfulness. And out of that faithfulness and understanding your love for us, may we too grow and become heirs of righteousness. We thank you that Jesus has heroically run his race perfectly. We thank you that the flood has descended upon him and that we are spared. God, let us not take your sparing for, for granted. Let us not be presumptuous. Let us not be arrogant. May we become profoundly humble. And out of that humility, even if seen to be crazy in the eyes of the world, to serve you with all faithfulness. We ask for this, this strength and this purpose, for this heroism. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.